From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. While only a minor nuisance for some women, for others, urinary incontinence can be debilitating, keeping them from being active or socializing. Research done by the National Institutes of Health shows that between 25 and 45 percent of women have some degree of urinary incontinence, and the problem gets worse with age. On today's program, we'll learn about treatment and prevention of urinary incontinence from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll discuss teens, depression, and mental health. And how a Mediterranean diet may help keep your brain healthy. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Urinary incontinence, sometimes referred to to as UI, is the loss of bladder control resulting in that accidental loss of urine. Now, women are twice as likely as men to suffer from incontinence, and that's for a lot of reasons. Pregnancy, childbirth, menopause, and just because the, you know, the anatomy of the female urinary tract is a little bit different. The way you were put together is a little bit different than men. And the, for the most part, it's all good. But well, the urinary you. tract, a little more trouble when it comes to incontinence. Urinary incontinence might be only slightly bothersome for some, while totally debilitating for others. For some women, the chance of Embarrassment keeps them from enjoying many physical activities, including exercising. But the good news is, effective treatments are available for treating urinary incontinence if women are willing to discuss it with their doctor. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Deborah Leitner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Leitner. It's so great to have you back. Very nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. Dr. Deb Leitner, you have been working on this problem virtually your entire career, right? Does it still surprise you how many women are incontinent and don't seek help? Yes, it does. There's no doubt about that. Part of that reason is is that historically women have had procedures done that didn't last very long. And so my mom had a bladder tie-up. It didn't last. Well, that's just what happens to me as I get older. So that they won't necessarily ask, but most importantly... We don't ask the question either. Oh, so when a woman goes in for uh, just a regular physical, mm-hmm. that's something that's not covered. Absolutely. Mm. It, does your bladder give you any difficulty? Hmm. So how it? should a woman approach that if their doctor doesn't ask? You can easily just say, look, my, bo- my bladder bothers me. It's more common than hypertension. It's more common than diabetes, and we don't necessarily ask the question. A woman should ask. So we established that incontinence is a problem, but there are different types of incontinence. Yes. So let's talk about that. Absolutely. So the one that you kind of alluded to earlier when you are discussing this was about women are built differently. We have pregnancies. We have uh, significant stressors that are placed on the pelvic floor as we have a child come through the pelvic floor. And those stresses, those stretches, may not give us stress incontinence at the time that we have our babies. We may get better from it. But then once we hit our 50s, we start to have more leakage with that activity. That's called stress incontinence. That means stresses on the pelvic floor make the pelvic floor open up and then you have urinary incontinence. But there's another very, very important type of incontinence that probably affects people's activities of daily living much more than stress incontinence because stress incontinence, I can predict, 
I know that if I cough or sneeze, I know if I do a jumping jack or if I go on a trampoline, oops, don't go on a trampoline, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's stress incontinence. I can predict it. But what about the leakage that I can't predict? I'm standing in the grocery store in front of the lettuce, and all of a sudden my bladder says, gotcha, Mm -hmm. and I pee and I fill my shoes. Now I'm not going to go out to dinner with my friends. I may not go shopping. I may not be able to sit through a movie if I go out with with friends. That kind of incontinence, called urge incontinence, is much more onerous to activities of daily living, much more disruptive of what you like to do, will keep you from traveling, will keep you from visiting friends. Which one is more common? Urge incontinence. Okay. Is it really? Urge incontinence is much more common, and the reason is, is it is much more prevalent as we get older. So stress incontinence, you've had a stretch to your pelvis during childbirth, or maybe you're overweight, maybe you have a chronic cough, and that's going to usually happen in your 50s and maybe your 60s. I can help you a lot with that by just teaching you where your pelvic floor is and strengthening that. Kegel exercises. Mm -hmm. But the urge incontinence is much more common in men and women as we get older much more common in both genders. So you talked about uh, pregnancies and age being risk uh, factors. What are the other risk factors for that might uh, let women know that they uh, are more likely to develop an incontinence, either type? Well, with stress incontinence, there is another thing. I already mentioned about weight, overall healthy, healthy weight, having a good muscle tone, strength. But there are also a group of women who are much more likely to develop stress incontinence as well as prolapse, things falling down, and that is if they have a lot of joint hypermobility. So if they have very, very stretchy connective tissue, and there's some tests that we can do very easily in the, in the office that will show you whether or not you may be a person who's also at risk. That also tends to run in families. Wait a second. While yep. you were telling us that, you were just... Pulling yeah, on your, your finger fingers. and putting your I finger was. back. So if you have stretchy joints, you're, if you're the rubber jointed woman, okay. Okay, I'm trying to push yeah. my finger back. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You can get your little finger back to 90 degrees. Yeah. Okay. Is that good or bad? That, that's. I'll tell you. Well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold off on answering that for okay. just a second. So now the other thing is, can you bend your thumb down and touch your wrist? Aha. Pretty yeah, close. I certainly can. Mm-hmm. And now st- stretch your arm out. Okay. And is your elbow flat at 180 degrees, or is it more than 180 degrees? <laughs> I think you better make an appointment. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess. Okay. So joint hypermobility is associated with stretchy connective tissue. You have babies through the pelvis. Your connective tissue tends to be stretchier. Mm-hmm. Now, that puts you at higher risk for prolapse for stress incontinence, but it also means that you're going to be better at gym, you know, gymnastics. <laughs> Those sorts of things. Is that true? Yoga. Good, that's what I'm going to do. Actually, yoga, um, those sorts of things. We're also much more commonly have orthopedic injuries because what will happen is you'll come down, you'll do a layup shot, you'll come down on your ankle, you'll twist your knee, you'll overthrow your shoulder. Those sorts of orthopedic injuries are very, very common in this group of people, and it tends to run in families. Uh, sorry, did, did I miss it? So if you have hypermobility of your mm-hmm. joints, are you more likely to have... Stress incontinence or urge incontinence? Stress incontinence. Stress incontinence. And uh, pelvic floor weakness, pelvic floor prolapse. I would imagine then you team that up with having a couple of kids, and I should probably make an appointment with you. (laughs) Only if you have (laughs) symptoms. Okay, very good. That's it. I'll just keep your number on my Rolodex. (laughs) All right, so if you have stress incontinence, are you more likely to get urge incontinence too, or are the two of them completely separate? 
They are related, but think of them as separate, uh, so that it really depends upon which is the most onerous to you, which bothers you the most. For many, many women, it's the urge incontinence that bothers them the most. Now, if you like to play tennis and you can't serve without having leakage, that's stress incontinence, and we may want to address that further with behavioral treatments and sometimes with surgical procedures. But I would also like to stress that if you come in to see me and I immediately say a surgery rather than behavioral, you should say, mm, I think I'll go see someone else. That's you right. wouldn't do Second that. Second opinion. Yep, absolutely. We're with urologist Dr. Deb Leitner and we're talking about urinary incontinence in the female. We have been told that there are two different types of incontinence, stress incontinence, urge incontinence, urge incontinence being much more common than stress. We've talked about the risk factors, children, obesity. Did I miss anything there? Uh, Oh, hypermobility. Hypermobility, (laughs) chronic cough. Um, If you're just not healthy, if you just aren't strong, that's going to put you at risk for stress incontinence as well. And, of course, aging. As you get older, this is a a problem that's much more common in the older woman. A privilege. A privilege of aging. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, Americans should drink eight glasses of water a day. Is that a myth or is that a fact? We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with urologist and female incontinence expert, Dr. Deb Leitner of the Mayo Clinic. And we'll start off with myth or matter of fact before we talk about the treatment of this most common problem. Yeah, myth or matter of fact, uh, Americans should drink eight glasses of water a day. Is that a myth or is that a fact? We've heard it time and time again. <laughs> that is a myth. Why? Okay. It is important to have a healthy diet, but that eight glasses of water, eight ounces, eight glasses a day, translates directly into eight voids because a a bladder holds holds about eight to ten ounces. Hmm. So that if you drink that much water, you should expect that you should have at least eight voids. Now, what we would really hope is that most of the the fluids that you get are in fruits and vegetables. They're about 80% water. So that that is going to contribute to your overall hydration during the day. Many of the patients that I see with urge and urge incontinence have it solely because they are compulsive water drinkers. So the fact is that you should drink when you're thirsty. No, that's actually not a great idea either, because unfortunately what happens if I tell somebody to do that and they're used to drinking eight glasses of water, eight ounces, they carry a water bottle around with them always, and I tell them, no, let thirst be your guide, they're already habituated to that high fluid intake. And they think, well, i got to drink. I'm, I'm dehydrated. They get thirstier they get, faster. They get thirstier faster because it's become very habitual. Okay, then is it the color of your urine that should guide you? No, the okay. color of your urine isn't a good one <laughs> we're either. We're going to get the right answer here no. pretty soon. Okay. We're gonna, we're <laughs> yeah, dispelling exactly. myths is what yeah. we're doing. The reason is is that many of us are taking, taking multivitamins, mm-hmm. and those multivitamins may color our urine. So, yes, that is true. It, you know, if you have particularly if you make kidney stones, there are some medical conditions when you should be drinking extra water, and kidney stones is one of them. So we'll routinely tell those people to have their urine be clear. But you and I do not need to hydrate to that degree. All right. So, okay, we're ta- so what's the answer? Yeah, how much, wa- how much do, what are some guidelines for drinking water? Water? <laughs> I don't know that you have to drink any additional water for medical reasons alone. 
All right. Well, that's good. Eight is way too many, unless you are a kidney stone former. There are some medical reasons why doctors will tell you to, to drink extra fluids, but that's not what we're talking about here. The majority of the people that I see don't have a medical reason to consume as much fluid as they do. So whether it's stress incontinence or urge incontinence, let's just back up even further and just say, what is normal? What is normal? Normal people void six mm-hmm. to seven times a day, eight to ten ounces each void. All right, six to seven times, times a, day, a day, eight to ten ounces per. I'm not measuring. Yeah. I'm just thinking, how many times do I go a day? But you don't need to measure. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of the way our bodies are able to metabolize fluids and keep us healthy, is that our bodies, our kidneys, will normally regulate the fluids that we. I'm uh, sorry, normally regulate the urine production that we make based upon our in, our intake. All right, so we got to talk about treatment. So we know this is a common problem. When we talk about treatment, do do we need to divide it up into stress and urge, or can we talk about treatment for both of them at the same time? Behavioral treatment is the primary way to treat incontinence, regardless of its type. All right, behavioral. Behavioral. All right, let's start. How do you Kegels? Kegels? Which is it? Sure. Um, actually. The gynecologist who first described that passed away many, many years ago, so I'm not sure how he pronounced his last name, um, but we usually say Kegels. Okay. Tell us about those. Well, Kegels are useful for women because they strengthen the pelvic floor, and most of us were kind of taught, oh, you pat it on the back, go do your Kegels, come on, go on, go do your Kegels, but we actually never tested to see whether or not a woman could identify her pelvic floor how long the how strong the contractions were and how what kind of endurance they had so that during a, a routine physical exam what I'll do is I'll say I'm going to put my finger in your vagina like a tampon and then I want you to squeeze those muscles if you, as if you're going to interrupt your stream or as if you're going to keep yourself from passing gas and what you'd like is to be able to have at least a 2 second hold with some additional lift okay so who cares i can mm-hmm. do my kegels yay mm-hmm. it's good for me but I should use those Kegels when, for example, I cough or sneeze. Just mm. as I would cover my mouth, I'm going to do a Kegel and tighten that pelvic floor to reduce the likelihood that I'll have stress incontinence with so that that's activity. Behavior. Be- that's behavior. That's behavior modification. More importantly, uh, you're standing in the grocery store near the lettuce, and your bladder says, uh-uh, I gotcha. I'm going <laughs> to soak your shoes. What you do first is you don't run to the bathroom because that's like trying to run with a full glass of water. You're right. not going to make it. Right. Okay? What you do is you stop and you do a series of what we call quick flicks. With your pelvic floor, you say, no, no, no. I told you no. <laughs> You're squeezing the pelvic floor rapidly. And what it does is through the sacral arc, through the lower spinal cord, it will turn around and tell the bladder, okay, not right now. And your urge will disappear. And then you can safely go to the bathroom and void. Is the same thing work for men? Absolutely. Yeah. Only in men, we don't call it Kegel exercises because he was a gynecologist. <laughs> we call it Janae's. Spelled like Janet, but with the little French. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? But it's the same thing? It's the exact same thing. And men are worse at doing Janae exercises than women are at doing Kegels. <laughs> really? They're just yeah. not very responsible, are they? But you know what? <laughs> we don't buy lettuce. So That's for us, it. it's just not a big problem. That's it. I'd say if you have a leaky bladder, that... that becomes pretty important really fast. Yes. Well, for men, men don't leak. Men, for the most part, have the urgency, but they don't usually have the leakage. Women leak, again, because of that difference in anatomy. Men have extra apparatus there that keep them drier than Sure. We are. All right. Okay, let's, uh, yeah. We, we uh, more treatment options. So right. if you've got behavior modification with the Kegels, what mm-hmm. else? 
I'd want to look at your bladder diary. Very important. Before I see anybody who's got bladder symptoms, I want a two-day bladder diary. I want to know what they're drinking, and I want to know what they're voiding. Importantly, I want to know how much they're voiding, what their inner void interval is, and how many of those um, activities are related with leakage. That will help me make the diagnosis and start right then and there discussing how we're going to modify behavior. And um, how do you do that? The things that we've talked about, but if all that isn't working and they're still incontinent, then what do you do? So incontinence with stress incontinence, and it's really bothersome to your activities of daily living. Your Kegels are good and strong. Then we're going to talk about some other options, whether that's bulking agents or slings or those sorts of surgical you procedures. S- you said before the break, though, that if you go to see any urologist and they start talking about or surgery right away, yeah, yeah. and yeah. they t- start talking about surgery right away, then you're in the wrong office. I think so. I think so. All right, bulking agents, start there. and then. Sure, bulking agents is the, just the injection of material around the bladder neck to literally kind of poof it up um, and make women less likely to have leakage. It's rarely effective in men. Um, but the problem with bulking agents right now is they just don't last. There is something on the horizon which won't be ready for me, but perhaps for others in the future, <laughs> and that's where we can actually grow muscle, your own muscle, um, from a biopsy, and grow it in on a plate, have it sent back, and then I can inject your own muscle into you that will actually function as an augment to your sphincter and reduce your stress. Wow. And it's an injection. I yes, mean, it doesn't it's an require a, a Nope, not well, a surgeon. And when might that be available? Um, it's, Tracy it's right will now, still be it's, Exactly. Yeah. It's right now in clinical trials. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. All right. So that's an option. What else? A sling. So that we talked a little bit about in terms of the pelvic floor supports not being perfect. And so when the pelvic floor rotates down and the bladder neck opens and then you have leakage, you can place materials around the bladder neck to create a hammock to make you less likely to have urinary leakage with activities. Successful most of the time? Successful most of the time. But do the behavior modifications get you? Behavioral modifications are primary, absolutely. 60 to 75% of women will find that the leakage that they have no no longer bothers their activities of daily living if they use the behavioral techniques we described. Wow, pretty incredible. Urologist Dr. Deb Leitner, also incontinence expert, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Leitner. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss teens, depression, and mental health. And research showing that a Mediterranean diet may help your brain stay healthy. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Opioids continue to be in the news. A Mayo Clinic study found that despite increased attention to opioid abuse, prescriptions have remained relatively unchanged for many U.S. patients. The research published in the BMJ shows that opioid prescription rates have remained flat for commercially insured patients over the past decade. Rates for some Medicare patients are leveling but remain above where they were 10 years ago. Dr. Jeffrey Molly is the lead author of the study and scientific director of the Mayo Clinic Division of Emergency Medicine Research. He says the data suggests not much has changed in prescription opioid use since about five years ago. Now, based on historical trends of opioid use, pain medicine specialist Dr. Michael Hooten says there remains an unmet patient need to better target the use of prescription opioids. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has previously reported that opioid prescriptions in the U.S. has increased dramatically from 1999 to 2010. Mayo Clinic is broadly researching opioid prescribing practices to find ideal doses for individual patient needs. The researchers say the goal is to achieve the best possible patient outcomes and experience with minimal exposure to opioids. This research has been translated into opioid prescribing guidelines and tools for medical practices at Mayo and beyond. And in other news, what you might call the dog days of summer may be something more menacing for a person prone to migraines. So how and why does summer weather sometimes trigger these headaches? That's a great question, says Dr. Rashmi Hawker Singh, a Mayo Clinic neurologist. She says that patients ask her that all the time, and there's just not a great answer. For some people, extreme weather conditions may cause imbalances in brain chemicals, which eventually can lead to severe throbbing pain of a migraine. Sunlight could also be a trigger. And other weather triggers include high humidity, extreme heat, and dry air. Dr. Hawker Singh says these conditions may lead to another migraine creator, dehydration. Lots of people forget to drink enough during hot weather, and dehydration can certainly be a risk for migraine attacks to happen. Her advice to people with migraines is to avoid extremes in summer weather and everyday schedules. She also says to be consistent with your eating habits and your sleeping habits. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For teenagers, issues like peer pressure, academic expectations, and changing bodies. You're going through that right now, aren't you, at your house? It was a long time ago that I was a teenager, Dr. Shives. Thank you. (laughs) Well, all those things can cause a lot of ups and downs, highs and lows. But for some teens, the lows are more than just temporary feelings. They're a symptom of depression. Depression can affect how your teenager thinks, feels, and behaves, and in extreme cases, it can lead to suicidal thoughts. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people aged 10 to 24. Fortunately for most teens, depression symptoms can ease with treatment such as medication and psychological counseling. And here to discuss teens and mental health is Mayo Clinic pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Krorkin. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Krorkin. It's good to see you. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. So, uh, Dr. Krorkin, the, the increasing number of suicides in this country has to be of some concern. It is very concerning, and it's, um, it's um, probably complex causes. It's something that's been, as you point out, talked about and written about quite, a lot, quite, quite often. And it's been, been estimated that the, uh, the overall rates have nearly doubled over mm. the last 20 years. Much of that involves um, teenagers, as you pointed out, with young people. It's the second leading cause of death. Sadly, there are in the neighborhood of you know, 45,000 completed suicides annually in the U.S. Young people account for usually about 10% of that. So there, there's a um, host of things to think about, and I, I would argue that my field in particular, we need to in, we need to embrace this as um, you know maybe a failure that mm-hmm. we need to relook at things and um, continue research in ways to, to do better with this problem in the future. So you said suicide rates for teenagers has doubled over the last 20 years. So have some. the rates of depression doubled as well? 
that's one of the one of the considerations. The thought is that actually anxiety and depression is increasing as well. But there are other there are other factors to to present a balanced view here. There are, has been the argument made that perhaps we are just getting better at quantifying right. and qualifying and identifying things, and we have more mental health professionals now, psychiatrists, to identify these things. Well, and people um, are talking about mental health as well. More, and there's hopefully less stigma, and people feel feel freer to talk about it, as you point out. There's also, as far as causes that are driving this potentially, there's been a lot of speculation. Is life becoming more fast-paced and stressful for, for teenagers in general? Some of us at our age, we have a diff- sometimes have a difficult time you know, wrapping our brains around that. But indeed, if you look at, look at some of the things go, that are going on and the challenges um, teens face today, it's not, um, it's not benign. Another, another very, um, very I, I would argue, poorly understood but important consideration is um, the Internet, digital, um, social media, things like Facebook, Twitter, and the, the platforms that sure. you and I don't even know about that mm-hmm. teenagers are using. How does that contribute? I mean, what's the relationship there? Well, the thought, the thought there have been there have been studies, Doctor Shives, that can that suggests that that more time spent on that thing contributes to depression. But it's probably not that simple. I mean, the argument's been made, and it, this has been looked at that overall, maybe maybe teenagers and to some extent adults are um, spending more and more time on these platforms with these technologies, and overall feeling less connected in a genuine face-to-face empathic sort of uh, fashion. The other pernicious aspect of these um, technologies, something that I see in my day-to-day practice often, is that there's a fair amount of um, negative behaviors, broadly is the best way to describe it, that there's what's called cyberbullying. It's rampant with a lot of the um, a lot of the young people that I work with, and it's um, thought that there's been some suggestion that it the effects of this may be more more lasting and severe than face to face face to face bullying, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, so, Dr. Shives alluded to the fact I've got two teenagers at my house, so I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to expect the choir of angels to start to rise up around me as I ask it. <laughs> How can a parent distinguish normal teen moods? Team behavior swings, yeah. from signs of depression. How can you tell the difference? It's a great question, and it's a it's a deceptively simple question right. too. In that, as you point out, um, teens in general have a host of neurologic, endocrine, psychologic changes that because can, can brain yeah, is still getting yeah, wired yeah, up, that can contribute to sure. to moodiness, um, and and predictably they tend to think that moms and dads are less interesting to be around and no less at this this age. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> it didn't happen at my house. I'm sure. I know. That's why I'm so confused by it. Yeah. But getting on, getting more on point with your question, uh, pervasive changes in, in, you know, what you could, you could refer to as personality. So dark, dark, irritable moods that are there all day long, day after day after day, that are appreciated in more than one environment. So if there's feedback from teachers, schools, sports teams, mm-hmm. that, you know, Joey or Sally is just not, it's not the same as they were before. Declining functioning. Academics is a is usually a big telltale sign that a previously uh, A or B student is suddenly a C or D or F student. Changes in peer groups, changes in behaviors, changes in sleeping patterns, and then a focus on dark kind of things, thoughts or, or talk about suicide, for example. And the um, again a related question I think would be what do you do about these these various social media platforms and internet use and that's another another thing I think broadly to just stay engaged with your your children um, and it's not easy in, in the teenage years. A couple of 
things I wanted to ask you about. First of all, access. I mean, there are so many more people who seem to be depressed. Isn't access to a mental health professional more difficult because there are more, so many more people out there and not enough of you? And I think the second part of that question is even if you are pretty certain that your child is, is depressed, there's concern about how effective the treatment is and what the treatment's going to be. Those are great questions, and uh, the short answer, you're absolutely right on the first count that um, access is um, to mental health professionals. Psychiatry in particular is not, not at all what it should be, and it's even more problematic for young people. Collectively, we are um, trying to address that. You know, Mayo Clinic has led the way in things, for example, that are called collaborative care models or integrative behavioral health, where we actually do things like we, we embed a psychiatrist within a large network of primary care clinics for a very different kind of role than what we're used to. It's more of a role of supervision, coaching, consultation on cases, so that family practice doctors, internists, um, and pediatricians, for example, get more, more adept and more comfortable with treating, identifying, treating things like depression and anxiety in a youngster or teenager. Good um, things. Yeah. All good. And uh, to get to your to get to your other question, um, uh, identification and the, the identification and the diagnosis of this is challenging. And for parents, it's often the way we do this is often um, hard to understand. In that we don't, you know, it's based on interviews and questions. There's no lab test or X-ray for this. But ongoing monitoring in mild cases, watchful waiting is appropriate. Where again, uh, parents and teachers have awareness. We do very simple but important things like help youths structure their sleep hygiene, their habits, their study patterns. Uh, but overall, if, if symptoms are moderate to severe, they're impeding functioning in academics, social, and family, treatment is important. And the first, the first line for depression is usually a combination of psychotherapy, things like cognitive behavioral therapy or what's called interpersonal therapy, and um, the judicious use of medications. And how can parents support their teens? Ongoing communication about about their life in general, encouragement sometimes and reminders to um, to take care mm-hmm. of their health um, overall, and setting that example as well, uh, making time for family, you know, dinner every day, those kind of things. And if parents think it is an emergency, they should call 911. Well, unfortunately, depression and suicides in America, and including among teenagers, is on the rise. Uh, it's important, though, to uh, if there is a problem, to get access to mental health care, even though it may be difficult, and you've got some effective treatments that are available. Exactly. We've been talking about teenagers and mental health with Mayo Clinic pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Corkin. Dr. Corkin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Shabs. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at some new research on diet and dementia. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, we know that a diet that's filled with fruits and vegetables is good for our waistline, but it's proving to be good for our brain as well. Mm -mm. A recent study published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease showed that people with normal cognitive function who followed a Mediterranean diet had lower amyloid deposits in the brain. As we've learned before on this program, amyloid deposits in the brain are one hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And here to discuss is the lead author of the paper, Mayo Clinic epidemiologist, Dr. Maria Vasilaki. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me. That was pretty good. Your Greek is pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I assume you are Greek, Dr. Rosalaki. Yes, yes, I come from Greece. It's great to have you with us. I, You know, I married into a Greek family, and so I, such nice people. <laughs> we appreciate it. It's really smart. <laughs> so uh, what's good for the body is good for the brain? Is that what we're saying? This is what we think. There is accumulating evidence suggesting that diet has a beneficial effect for the brain too, uh, and for against cognitive decline and dementia as well, although we don't have definite evidence for that, but there is a good body of literature supporting that. Is that what prompted you to do the study? Yes. Um, in the Mayo Clinic study of aging, we are studying cognitive decline and um, also biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. So one of them would be the amyloid deposition in the brain, and we had the scans um, and the data to study that and study the association with diet. So when you, we talk about amyloid deposition in the brain, amyloid is, a, as I recall, it's been a while, a protein, <laughs> right? Yes. And we knew from autopsy studies that patients who had Alzheimer's disease before they died had these deposits of amyloid for whatever reason. So there's an association between the two. And now, if I'm correct, we can actually detect those amyloid deposits on an MRI scan. Correct. Uh, we we detect them in a, for example, in a PET scan. So we introduce some molecules through the blood, and they go and highlight areas of amyloid deposition. So we have the scans, and we know the areas where we have elevated amyloid. And you said that you studied people with normal cognitive function. So how do you determine if someone's brain is normal and they can be in the study? Yes. Um, so. In the, our participants in the Mayo Clinic study of aging, they go a very comprehensive cognitive evaluation with um, um, nine different neuropsychological tests, and then they are evaluated by uh, a physician as well. Uh, we also take information by the informant, their partner, so we have a lot of information. And then by consensus, uh, we gather all the information, and uh, the nurse that helped or the study coordinator, the physician, and the neuropsychologist they decide um, based on data that we have uh, whether someone would be within the normal uh, function range or someone would have a little more cognitive decline than, than we would expect for their age or whether someone would be in the dementia. Uh, what was the age, the average age of the study participants? So for this specific study, uh, was 70 years and older. So the mean age is about 78 years old. 55% of them were men. And what did the study show, ultimately? So we asked them about their eating habits the last 12 months. Uh, so they had to answer um, uh, about 128 different questions on the food groups that they were eating, the, the amount, and also uh, how often they would. Uh, and we found that uh, the individuals that were following closer uh, the Mediterranean diet um, and those that had a higher consumption of vegetables uh, were less likely to have elevated levels of amyloid deposition in the brain. Now, we have to point out that this is a cross-sectional study in our terminology, which means this is like a photograph. We don't have the dimension of time, so we don't know what came first and what came second. So as we say um, in our area of research, we cannot assess the causality between the two. However, um, uh, we, this is uh, information that supports previous information that we know that diet has a beneficial effect. Um, there is also the possibility that another factor could be in place that we haven't measured, that we don't know about it yet. Hmm. Uh, but this is a first sign that um, uh, our study showed uh, supporting evidence of a beneficial association.
We all have talked about it, and we've talked about it on this program, but refresh our memories with regard to the Mediterranean diet. Uh, We know that it's mostly fruits and and vegetables, but what what can't you eat or shouldn't you eat if you're on that diet? So it's, it's a very colorful diet. It's high in the consumption of fruits and vegetables, legumes, nuts, also moderate to high consumption of fish, less consumption of meat and saturated fats, and more fats in, the, in terms of olive oil are consumed in the diet. Also, there is um, optional uh, moderate use of alcohol as well, uh, mainly wine, and usually it happens in social occasions. No, wait a minute. Was wine on the list or not on the list? Wine was on the list for the Mediterranean diet when we started studies in the 1960s. Now, alcohol is is optional in a way because for some of the conditions we should not drink. It's very idiosyncratic uh, if we cannot control the amount of wine. So it's really optional. All right. The question is, people who have followed this diet for their entire life, people who live in the Mediterranean, I guess, mm-hmm. Do they have a lower incidence of Alzheimer's disease than we have? I don't have a definite answer on that. As far as research is concerned, uh, very rigorous clinical trials research. So we don't have definite evidence to suggest dietary interventions in our life today. We have, though, a big amount of observational data and some clinical trials that would support uh, that uh, good balanced diet like the Mediterranean diet, but also other diets like the DASH diet or the MIND diet that were associated with slower cognitive decline. So I'm not familiar with either one of those, the DASH and the what was the other one? MIND. MIND. (laughs) Mind. So the DASH diet is uh, dietary approaches uh, to stop hypertension, and the MIND is Mediterranean DASH uh, interventions for neurodegenerative delay. So having studied this, are are you pretty much convinced that uh, a Mediterranean diet is a good idea not just for overall health but also to prevent cognitive decline? Are you convinced? I think we need to learn much more, but we have enough to follow the advice of decades now to have a good, balanced, healthy diet, and the Mediterranean diet pattern is one of them. The good thing is that Although we don't have any new recommendation based on this study, and although we said it's like a photo, a cross-sectional study, it adds an additional motivation that what is good for my general health, what is good for my cardiovascular, can support my brain health. And that can happen directly, maybe through defense mechanisms, or indirectly supporting my cardiovascular system, which also would be very important for brain health and dementias. What's next in your research? So what we would like to do, and other researchers also are doing, uh, is to follow people longitudinally to see whether we follow the Mediterranean diet or any other uh, beneficial diet pattern, whether changes in our biomarkers in the brain, amyloid, for example, or changes in our cognition, beneficial changes are associated with a good balanced diet. We've been discussing how diet may play a role in preventing or delaying cognitive decline and dementia with Mayo Clinic epidemiologist Dr. Maria Vasilaki. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Vasilaki. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.